listening to the Dr. Claude Kirshner Show. My name is Dr. Claude Kirshner, and we are here to serve organizational leaders and agile teams who strive for excellence and differentiation. I hope you enjoy the content. If you have any questions or would like some additional resources, please visit our website at www.archconsults.com. Enjoy. But then you have certain people that take that to the wrong way. Certain people that, okay, well, you called and you did the thing and your team won. Now you got the account or you got the information you needed. So now you're the big bad whatever. And now all of a sudden you're bad mouthing competitors and you're stealing their their tenants. When, when you find out that they got a new listing, you're calling that listing right away. And you're, you're lying to that customer about your competitor saying how bad they are and all this kind of stuff. And then your behavior manifests itself into this company and this culture and these people that are really ruthless. And that image eventually gets out to the, to the media. People find out about it. Certain stories and police come into your workforce and start uncovering unethical, illegal activity that has been covered up by management over time and the whole thing falls apart. So I, obviously it's, I brought it to the extreme, but you can see how some of those little decisions and being okay with it could lead to catastrophe over time. So this is the complexity of the multiplicity and the confounding nature of unethical behavior. Where do we draw the line? When is it, Unethical versus ethical. The law is easy. It's going to be up to you to develop that line in your own life, uh, based on your own experiences, based on your own values. And then it's going to be up to you as managers and leaders to create those boundaries and then create that environment for the people you're leading. Now she's dealing with people. Do you remember what this person did? There's a receptionist. Her name's Marianne. So picture this. This is why I love these cases. You're... A technical specialist moving into a generalist role, there's economic turbulence. You're a manager in a new location, you're looking for a promotion, so you walk into your office with something to do, like you have something on your mind. And there's a receptionist that's on the phone. Hey, how you doing? Oh, manager's coming. Hold on one second. I have to tell you something that's really important. Oh, I don't have time for that. No, I really have to tell you. Like, okay, what? What are you, what are you gonna tell me? You have no idea what's about to come. So she's distracted walks past the receptionist Marianne, who is busily answering the phone. Hanging up the phone, Marianne tells Westbrook that Carol Jean, a popular hairdresser, so what's tough about this situation is that she's getting customers to come. So she's a good hairdresser. Called in sick, and they now have to reschedule their clients. Moreover, Marianne said that Carol Jean was bad-mouthing the salon on Facebook again. Westbrook had denied her earlier request to miss a day, to travel out of town to attend a concert, and her irritation is obvious. The Facebook posts post slam the salon for its declining business and being a poor place to work. So you have this employee who's a performer who was lying, cheating, and acting not so great. If you had one, you, you had to do one or the other. You had to fire this person or keep this person on staff just based on that information. What would you do? Is the decision that straightforward and easy? Remember the economic pressure. Remember she is. She gets customers to come to the salon. Remember, she's, she cuts great hair. The fire decision is strictly sort of an ego thing. You know, how dare you act like that? I'm not saying that you shouldn't fire her because she's setting a tone and a culture that's not great. But if there was option A, B, C, D, and E, and C was have a candid conversation with the employee, provide consequences, and make sure everyone knows that consequences have been enforced and this isn't how we act on here. That's another option. Then option D is to... Uh, demote her or maybe take a pay cut or just whatever, like a different kind of consequence. So this has happened before. So if you don't do anything about it or for, for whatever reason you give her one of these and nobody takes it seriously, then this kind of behavior could manifest itself. Considering that the culture is, is, considering that she has influence, she could very well not have influence and they could all sort of, she could be an outlier, but we don't know. This is the contextual complexity of management. I mean, how important is that question to understand prior to enforcing additional consequences or even consequences in general? We're going to talk today about fun conversation to have, great conversation to have, and it's somewhat polarizing right now in the world. So we'll look at both views and we'll kind of dissect it a little bit. But ethically, how ethical is it to badmouth the company you work for? It's not ethical. Is it illegal? No, but it's not ethical. It's not right. It's morally wrong. What I love about it is that this conversation, this, this situation is real. Environment, new position, she's busy, she walks in, she gets interrupted, and she hears some bad news. So, ah, <laughs> this day isn't going so well so far. So now she goes to her office, 
And she has to formulate a plan to put together a presentation to the corporate world to explain and justify the performance of her store. Her new store, she wants to be thought of well because she's a new manager and she wants to get promoted. So now she has an individual agenda that she's trying to push. So the conflicting priorities are very apparent. And I'm sure we can all relate to that. I mean, today, I'm on time, we're gonna leave early, you're gonna do dishes before you leave, you're gonna eat, you're gonna, what are you gonna do? How are you gonna do it? How are you gonna act while you're doing this? That feeling of tenseness when you're trying to decide amongst the priorities of your day is relevant in management. So relevant management. More so because not only are you individually trying to decide the priorities, everyone's watching you individually decide. What's she gonna do next? How's she gonna act? How's she gonna treat me? I'm doing this wrong, am I gonna get in trouble? Am I gonna get in trouble? I mean, it's a constant uh, looking glass of people looking at you. So she's gotta go through this, this report, she's stressed about it, she doesn't know what to do about this hairstylist. And now there's one other variable that came in. There's somebody that needed a haircut. She has paged another interruption to the receptionist that has to speak to an angry customer. Angry customers need to be dealt with. They want to talk to managers. Another interruption. She fumes to herself. There, there's this whole spiel now, and I'll sum it up, where she now thinks that this lady, Victoria, who's the assistant manager who said, I'll handle an angry customer, is now jockeying for her job. So the turmoil and the drama continues as she thinks that she made the wrong decision. If she doesn't get her act together, at least from what we have here, not only will she not be a good manager for her people, she likely won't get promoted. If she does, if she can't handle what she's taking care of at this level, if she was to move up without building the, the human skills and the conceptual skills, and I'll briefly touch on those in a second, she's gonna fail up here. It's gonna even be more, more of what she's facing. So as a human being, as a manager, you have to make sure the people around you, I see you. I see you and I care about you. So clearly with, with the conversation, this is human skill. If, if I'm like emotionally unintelligent, or I can't engage at a level of connecting with other people, you don't have great human skills. Or you need to work on your human skills. And that can be worked on. And it can be done through practice, it can be done through repetition, it can be done through education. So human skills are important for her. And if she had sat down with Carol Jean very early, gave some information, and been able to tell her, hey, this isn't okay, she maybe not would have dealt with the situation right there. And I could tell when she was walking into the office and she had the receptionist that was on the phone, it didn't seem like she was present. She was in her head. She was individual in her herself. When you walk in through the door, hi, how are you? Nice to see you. I'm present and I care and I want to engage with you all in a present way. So let me give you an example of a not so great way. Hey, yeah, 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 okay, cool. Yeah, I'll get to that in a second. Uh, sorry guys, I'm, I'm gonna go to my office. Nice to see you, how are you doing? That, the managers walk in to rooms like that Yes. Yeah. They're so busy. They're like, oh, oh like, don't look at me. I, I'm busy. <laughs> this is not good. Managers should not be like this. And also, a lot of times when we have things on our heart, when we're in a tough place, I do believe in being vulnerable. I do believe in being real and authentic with your staff. But you do have to realize that in a leadership position, people, your energy, people will jive off of that energy. So to, to reset yourself in some kind of way and say, I'm happy to be here. It's going to be a great day today. And then if somebody comes to your office later and says, hey, you know, how are you doing? You say, oh, I've had a tough night. I'm a little tired. Really need to get some coffee, but thanks for asking. You can be honest, but being emotionally triggered or sad or depressed or anxious in front of a group of people as a manager isn't always a good thing. Not, not that you're portraying yourself as weak, but that you're portraying the fact that you are emotionally conjured up, which gets people on edge themselves. So it takes away from the group effectiveness of your team. If, if your manager is happy, engaged, emotionally intelligent, has good human skills, you're naturally gonna to progress towards being productive. You would think, it doesn't happen all the time, but you would think. So if a manager can control that, we must control it in order to be effective. That's my two cents as to how I think she's, she's gonna drown, or if she wants to start swimming, she has to do it in a different kind of way. There's pressure to perform, which changes how people make decisions. I always say, I, I used to say, and it's a silly terminology, is that the people, they're skating on thin ice. Like they, they're, they're right on that edge of if they do one or two more things wrong, they're not gonna work anymore. And saying that in my mind really 
made it clear that this person isn't in a good place. And that, that second warning has already been administered and their behavior is pretty much going on this direction and not in this direction. But there's always a chance. There's always a chance that they can come back in line. I'm gonna assert or just hypothesize that she doesn't know what she's doing when she's posting to social media and it's more for her own individual attention. Meaning she, my company's no good, I'm the best person they have. Therefore, if you're gonna come, come get a haircut with me, but just walk past management because they suck. I, that's how what I'm thinking, which is pretty ignorant. Yeah. You think you would leave first and then say something bad, but to do it while you're actively employed is, is like self-sabotage. At times we have to realize that sometimes we have to educate the people that work with us. Sometimes they just don't know. They don't understand. Oh, social media, that's private. I can say what I can do what I want. Mm. Do you not understand? Like, we can see that. And when we can see that, that's not good. And here's the effect on corporate. Like, nobody ever told them before. They didn't know that, you know, they're following. There were some people there that were a part of the company. That is just one variable amongst many. And the, the real case is about the skills that need to be developed for the manager. And this particular incident, it could have been avoided, but also it needs to be dealt with in, in a way. And it's funny how we're just highlighting this one incident. But I'll tell you what, the incident that is more important, this is the conceptual thinker, hopefully in all of you, is the presentation to bosses. And if she goes into the boss's room and she's like, oh my gosh, she was an angry customer today. And I have a staff member that was posting bad stuff on social media. And I don't know what to do about it. I don't know what to do. Higher level managers are going to say, okay, you need some managerial coaching and you're not ready for a promotion, which is okay. I mean, let's, let's coach you. Let's, let's make you a good manager. From a conceptual level, she needs to understand that the store productivity, the store culture, the store environment, the, the overall general goals of the business are the most important for her to conceptualize, at least in that conversation. And if she can't nail the conceptual skills down and she can't present those conceptual skills to the, the powers to be, that's a tough position to be in too. And you know that they have no idea what to talk about and they're totally lost, and they had no business speaking about that content. It's very crucial for you not to be that person if you're gonna put yourself in front of people and demonstrate yourself as a subject matter expert. I think that that's where the conceptual thinking comes into play. We haven't talked much about that, but the, the firing decision, we haven't decided. Most people said if they had an option to keep her or let her go, that would let her go. But when presented with additional options, like maybe enforce some consequences or do something else, it's like, oh, well, maybe, maybe we can do Some people, not so much everyone, but. The business ethics, and I know it's sort of a buzzword, but social responsibility not only is being talked about a lot, but I think it's, it's really foundational for us to understand. It's not, oh, let's do good and don't be a mean person and come on, just don't break the law, we'll be good. It's more than that. I would venture to say that if you can't get this part right, that you'll fail miserably in, in a lot of things that you'll do. If acting ethically and understanding the essence of the contextual law mixed with your personal decisions, mixed with your personal behavior, those things can't resonate and, and grow you in maturity, then it's just gonna be hard. It, there's gonna be a lot of things that I'll say from my perspective, a lot of issues that I faced along the way that I wish I had known or I wish I had made decisions different. And I was heeding advice from people that I probably shouldn't have sought advice from. And if I had known more about the ethos of ethics and how it applies to business, and especially the role of being a leader and a manager and having authority and power and what that does to a person and the way in which they behave with power and with authority and how they treat other people, it matters. It matters. Like uh, Maleficent, like this movie, this Disney movie, like the Snow White, the, the witch. She's, in essence, she is evil itself. So, okay, so who here has experienced malice? Raise your hand. It is a horrible, dreadful experience to be the recipient of somebody else's malice, to be caused evil upon, or also, or the manipulated, or the biggest one, the most difficult one for me to handle, and I know uh, psychosocially for a lot of people to handle, is being betrayed. It's feeling as if you put your trust in somebody and they betray you. This is not a fun situation to be in. And a lot of times what it does is it gets people to question, okay, so I was just betrayed, and I was walking, I was walking, I was doing a good job, and I was working, and. My manager said they would give me a promotion. I was doing the, the right things to get the promotion. I, I told my wife about the promotion. I told my kids and I was hitting my goals and it was my day. I walked into that office and my manager completely did a 180. And not only did they say, hey, listen, you're not going to get promoted today, but we have cutbacks in this organization. And because of something you said about me two years ago, whatever, I don't know, some resentment they have in their heart. I'm gonna let you go, so you're fired. And so you walk, you walk out of that conversation. Remember the way you walked in? You walk out of that conversation saying, what 
I, everything I knew up until this point has been shattered. So you say to yourself, is it me? Did I do something wrong? And it's my whole worldview, my whole life, is it completely distorted? Am I crazy? And you start questioning, you go through this traumatic experience. Not only I'll say it in this way, I have caused that in other people's life. And I'll be very honest and admit that. And also, in addition, other people have caused it in mine, professionally. This is in the scope of managing and growing businesses. These are things that have never so... Every time I did it to somebody else, and I wasn't intentionally malicious, wasn't trying to cause evil, but there was a part of me that was manipulative. I'll be honest. I was dishonest with somebody uh, because I wanted, I wanted gain from it. And then when I had to be honest with them, they felt betrayed. And it's tough. And so, and that was brought back to me. It's a horrible feeling and I wish it upon nobody. So how can we as managers set up our business, our personal practices, and how can we address ethical issues before they get out of hand? That's the core question of the conversation tonight. The ethical issues that we can control, also the, the environmental impact of our company on the culture and society and this kind of stuff. You have the general environment, the task environment, and the internal environment. Social cultural, the, the way in which our society operates, how our culture works together or doesn't work together, and the negative impacts that artificial intelligence could potentially have in that it's a general environment. A lot of which is Born in multiplicity, meaning like if I make an individual decision, not that big of a deal, I don't think. But then if it's done in a multiplicity way and it's impacted at scale, that's a problem. So what she's trying to get at is these individual decisions that are being made that are then being done in multiplicity that are going to affect the masses. So she that that was sort of her her agenda in that conversation. Okay, if we're not thinking about the little programming decision here, then it could have a bigger impact somewhere else. Which is hard. It's hard to control and regulate stuff like that. So as managers and, and leaders, and as we dive into a, a chapter I was willing to skip called business ethics, I think the first thing that I want to assert or at least conceptualize with you all is understanding our individual behavior and, and its ethical impact on those around us. And being understanding what ethics is and understanding what law is and understanding what morality is. These are important concepts. You're going to have to conjure up your own ability to answer this. But ethics is a code of moral principles and values that governs the behaviors of a person or group with respect to what is right and wrong. It's amazing how in business and even in general that we have to have classes on ethics because we would think that people would know how to behave. But that's not the case. And that's why we have to have classes like these. So what's cool is codified law, free choice, and ethics. So codified law is law. Something can be legal but not ethical. And I think about, when you think about a business practice, when I first came into real estate, commercial real estate, I would call on other commercial real estate companies and I would ask them what it would cost to rent that office space over there, pretending as if, as if I was a customer. But I was a competitor and I was looking for competitive market rates. I wanted to know what they were leasing their property at. I needed information. I lied and presented myself as a potential renter in order to get the information I needed. Is that illegal? Is it unethical? Okay, do you see the conflict? Mind. Has anyone done something like this before? And the, the point is, it's not so easy. And I did it because I wanted to get a competitive advantage, because I wanted to impress my bosses. I needed information. I provided them with information. I was a dang good liar. And therefore, um, I'm good at what I do. Because they're doing it, does it, should it even impede upon my own decision making to do it? In a sense of general human evolution, survival, ecology. Mm-hmm understanding the reality of we have to do certain things that we don't want to do because we're trying to protect our future self and we want to create a good future. And in order to do that, if we have to pick up the phone and ask some questions to people, it's not illegal. We're going to do it. Dang, we're, we're here to, to, to make our team better. It's, it's sort of individualistic, which is good. And it's versus utilitarianism. And it, individualism really says, okay, we're going to do what's best for me and what's best for my family, what's best for us. And collectively, we're going to start to manipulate, well, not manipulate, but manufacture a society that's what's best for most people, most people. And we're going to figure out a way to make things decently right by taking care of our own interests. But then you have certain people that take that the, the wrong way. Certain people that, okay, well, you called and you did the thing and your team won. Now you got the account or you got the information you needed. So now you're the big bad whatever. And now all of a sudden you're bad-mouthing competitors and you're stealing their their tenants, when, when you find out that they got a new listing, you're calling that listing right away and you're, you're lying to that customer about your competitor saying how bad they are and all this kind of stuff. And then your behavior manifests itself into this company and this culture and these people that are really ruthless. And that image eventually gets out to the, to the media. People find out about it. Certain stories and police come into your workforce and start 
uncovering unethical, illegal activity that has been covered up by management over time and the whole thing falls apart. So I, obviously it's, I brought it to the extreme, but you can see how some of those little decisions and being okay with it could lead to catastrophe over time. So this is the complexity of the multiplicity and the confounding nature of unethical behavior. Where do we draw the line? When is it unethical versus ethical? The law is easy. It's going to be up to you to develop that line in your own life, uh, based on your own experiences, based on your own values. And then it's going to be up to you as managers and leaders to create those boundaries and then create that environment for the people you're leading. And any kind of misstep here, when done in multiplicity, as you start to scale, you will realize that that's going to be something that's going to come to be your Achilles heel in the future. These things matter. And should they be taken so seriously at the granular level, like you said, like one phone call to a competitor to lie about the fact that you're a tenant and you're not, you're actually a competitor, is that going to create catastrophe? No. But if done continuously all the time without any regard to, oh, this is how we do it here, that could construe something different. So codified law, really easy. Values and standards written into legal systems and enforceable in the court. You cannot run a red light. Pretty simple, pretty straightforward. Don't do it. If you do it, there's consequences. It's a law. If I run a red light and say, you know, I don't really hurt anyone, it's not really ethical, but it's illegal. And that's where, you know, it's almost easier to follow the codified law. Free choice, behavior not covered by law, and for which an individual has complete freedom. Free choice when you speak, free choice when you post, free choice when you talk to your friends, free choice when you talk to your family members. You're not being told how to do it, when to do it, and what confines to do it. Ethics, standards of conduct based on shared principles and values about moral conduct, which is so it's such a phenomenon because we talked last time about culture. And every culture has different ethical standards in which they treat people, how they talk to people. And, of course, internal cultures, same thing. So that the phenomenon really lies at the ethics perspective. Personal standards, legal standards, social standards. I kind of like free choice, law, gray area, sort of up for interpretation. I was, I was working with a friend that I would consider to be a friend. He was an employee. And he was a, a manager, general manager of our construction company. And I won't mention his name just because he's still a person that operates in the world today. He worked with us for about five years. And we trained him. We sent him to programs to be certified. We brought him into a career. We promoted him. We gave him access to resources. And we brought him to the level of a senior. It was president of project management. He had a lot of control. And he was making about $140,000 a year with benefits. So he had, he had like 120 salary and then he had a truck, 401k, every once in a while he had a bonus and he was performing, he was doing pretty well until he wasn't. When he wasn't performing, obviously as the president of the organization to come alongside of him continuously and see what's going on. So I would visit his jobs, I would go out to lunch with him, I would talk to him, I would see what's happening and I would question some of his expenses and I also had a CFO who was kind of on to him as well. So it was a couple of months of this, okay, we're on you now, uh, until we discovered that he maliciously, maybe not maliciously, but selfishly started a job, a job like he started building a job so we build pools. He started building a pool for a friend that he met through our connection. He was building it under our permit that he forged. So we have a license to build pools. You need credibility to do that, so we need to sign a permit to get ability to build a pool. So he didn't have a license, so he forged a signature to pull the permit. So that was on our was on our project, and then he started buying materials on our account, our business account, in excess of about five thousand six dollars, about eight thousand dollars worth of materials, fraudulent permit, eight thousand dollars worth of material that we found. But he didn't tell us about it. We found it. And we confronted him with it. And when we confronted him with it, he said goodbye. When we say goodbye, he deleted his entire cell phone. He tried to vandalize his laptop, but luckily we got it going forward. He sped off. He parked his car in the parking lot, like a company car, a parking lot next door. Had a personal car that he sped off with in the spirit. I thought, my father thought, that he was like our friend. Like we thought that he cared about us. He betrayed us. He was malicious towards us. He completely, and he, we turned out, because I checked all of his emails afterwards, that he had started a company with one of our clients, literally one of our clients that we built a pool for a bunch of years back, about three months prior. Right when he started acting up and I started getting on his case, he then was lying for three months. And he was taking information that we had as a company, like proposals and clients and, and, and lists of prospects, and he was sharing them with his new business partner. 
So get this. This goes even further. Upon this investigation, we filed a police report. We did all this stuff. And we don't even really know what happened with it because it was so traumatic for us that we just kind of let the police take care of it. That um, the, the client, the partner that he had, his wife, partner that he had's wife was a lawyer. So when we, when he found out that he had a non-compete, his non-compete basically said, hey, listen, not only did you steal all this kind of stuff, but you also have a non-compete. Like you can't compete against us in this space after we fire you for two years after leaving us because we provided you all of this, everything. So you can't. So I'm looking at his emails, right? And I see his conversation with the lawyer friend. I was under investigation, so I'm looking at his, his computer. I see the, the lawyer got an exchange of information where the lawyer was telling him, oh, thank God you didn't sign a non-compete up in Miami-Dade County. So she very well knew. She was a lawyer, a trained lawyer that knew what he was doing was wrong, knew she was a part of this whole process, and she was looking for a loophole to make it more legal. This is the kind of just crazy stuff that people do, and they do it for personal gain. And they do it at the expense of other people. I mean, this is a company we built over 25, 30 years. He worked there for five, so he was like a part of it. And he took information that we had built over 25, 30 years to a new company. It's illegal. Plus, he had a non-compete. Yeah, it was in Monroe County. Plus, he stole from us. And this lawyer knew it. <laughs> this lawyer was going to bat for him and try to protect him, even though he was in the wrong. Did you know that Bernie Madoff had lawyers to try to defend him? Do you guys know who Bernie Madoff is? So Bernie Madoff embezzled like millions and millions of dollars. He ended up committing suicide in prison. And this was a while back uh, where he was, it was a Ponzi scheme. He would take money from people, uh, he would keep it, and then he would take more money from people and then he would give it to those people. And then okay. like basically he would just sort of siphon off money from people and he would invest some of it, but he would just steal it, he would keep it. And he would invest it himself and own it and make big returns on his own money. And anytime one of his investors needed money, he would give him like a little bit of money, just enough to like keep him to trust him. He did it over years and years and years. So when he got caught, he was vehemently wrong, but lawyers still defend him and try to mitigate a sentence or look for loopholes and find ways that he can get out of it, essentially. So this is this is real stuff. And these are some of the things that are part of it. Personal ego, greed, pressure to increase profits, desire to appear successful. That was a big one for this guy I talked about. He got captured by that whole, I want to be successful, I want to be an entrepreneur, I'm doing all the work around here, therefore I deserve this. And that's ego too. We, we ended up hiring two other people, uh, one of which cleaned up the mess that he sort of left behind. I had to do a lot of work and a lot of research, and I had to do a lot of managerial, relational, um, but the company ended up doing decently. But eventually in business, the fun thing is like it becomes really important, but the essence of the company, like as operations continue to move forward, you just, I don't want to say you write it off as like the cost of doing business, but these things happen. You just got to keep going. You can't let it sink you. And we didn't let it sink us because we, we found other employees. We kept the products going. We called some of the competitors and we certainly looked at the, the client, which the faulty permit, and we said, no, no, <laughs> pull that permit. <laughs> like, we're not building that pool. And oh, by the way, did you know that this was a faulty permit? And if so, we're, your good charges are going to get pressed against you too. So we had we had to have those kinds of conversations, which was quite interesting. And some people just don't care. The permit was it wasn't him. It was it was somebody else, and it wasn't the signature was off. And it turned out that we have a permit expediter, and the permit expediter was in it too. <laughs> like she was acting unethically and illegally. In the court system, there's criminal and there's civil. If you press civil charges, it's a different kind of criminal is like going against federal or state law, which means permits like that's criminal. And the, and then of course, stealing money. But in order to prove that somebody stole money, you have to get bank accounts and there's like whole sorts of different ways you have to go about doing this. So the police have to really do an investigation. The damage is remember innocent until proven guilty. So we, we pressed criminal charges against him and we we could we could have pressed civil charges as well but like for stealing the information and building a company and a non-compete that stuff is civil it's interesting and i'm happy we can talk about it because you know these are what i just said is is relevant you know like these are important things to understand civil criminal you know if somebody does something wrong to you you have to realize well is it illegal and if it is illegal can i prove that they did it and that's important. And if you have pictures or something in writing or video or 
a confession or corroboration where there's like witnesses to tell you that this person did it, and you can, if you can prove a case in front of a court beyond a reasonable doubt that they're guilty, then they get criminal charges pressed against them. But you got to go through that whole linear process. So basically what I'm saying is, and I'm not trying to get you guys to be like, you know, vigilantes or anything, but if you know somebody's doing something illegal, you, you better you better demonstrate the case. And if you're going to you tell somebody about it, you can't just tell them about it. You have to prove it to them. If you're really, truly trying to get somebody to go to jail for their, their actions because they're doing something illegal. And I had to learn that lesson the hard way. So utilitarian approach, individual approach, and moral rights approach. These are three like sort of worldviews we think of when we think of ethics. The utilitarian approach is a moral behavior produces the greatest good for the greatest number of people. So it says, I make decisions based on you and the collective. So let me see if I can get an example of that. Uh, I go home tonight and my wife's sitting there and I say, you know what, the baby's sleeping. Let me, uh, let me choose instead of going to the dinner, going to the refrigerator and getting food because I'm hungry. Let me choose to like uh, make sure the dog is out, make sure my wife is good. And let me make sure the home is safe. Let me check all the windows and all the doors before I decide to eat food. So I'm most interested in the collective good before the individual good. So I act in a utilitarian, the most utility for the most people. That's the way in which I make my decisions. And obviously an unethical way would be to not take that into consideration when making decisions. So then you have the individualism approach, which is what, first of all, that first one, when we talk about cultural context, you think about, think about these old Japanese movies you watch. You better, you better that, that dad is doing what I just said. But that dad is disciplined to the core and is walking in there and making sure his family is utilitarianly good. The collective good is well beyond what the individual dad is interested in because he's a patriarch of the family, he's a patriarch of the culture. That's how that works. In America, more so, we have more people who are a little bit more individualist, individualistically inclined. Acts are moral if they promote the individual's best long-term interests. Doesn't sound good, but let me try to paint that in a light where it is actually good because individualistic societies tend to be economically prosperous. And what happens is if a person works really hard and gains something, what tends to happen is they tend to share with others. So if I act individualistically, like call on competitors and get that rental rate, and I'm pursuing goals and I attain success, I don't just hoard that to myself. I share it with my wife and family, this kind of stuff. So that's how economic prosperity tends to work out well from an individualism perspective. There's tough parts about it, of course, but there's good parts about it where sometimes the divergent view there is real. So now you have the moral rights approach. Humans have fundamental rights and liberties that cannot be taken away by an individual's decision. Pro-choice, practicing whatever religion I want to practice, but is that a moral right amongst all of humanity no, or just certain cultures? So it's the same thing. It's, it's culturally contextual. It depends on the culture. What my moral rights are as a human I have the right to stand erect and be proud and go places that I need to go and to build a business and to care for my family and to uh, practice my freedom of speech. These are my moral rights as a United States citizen. But if I was to go to a different country, ethics. it's totally different. Approaches to ethical decision-making. Remember, we're talking about ethics. We're not talking about law here. So this is in your mind. Say, okay, utilitarian approach, the collective good. Individualism approach, my good, which hopefully leads to more good amongst the world. The moral rights approach is basically just saying, I have the right to do this, this, and this, and I'm going to dang well do it, regardless of whether it's good for people or whether it's good for me. I'm doing it because I have the right to do it. So you just think about, I have the moral right to go to the store right now and buy 38 pizzas. And I can sit here and eat all 38 pizzas myself. I have the moral right to do that, don't I? Is that kind of absurd and could that potentially affect my health and you know maybe my my next day is unproductive and i don't show up and work and there's there's problems with that so that's i'm, I'm trying to use that as an example of taking certain things to the extreme even from a moral rights perspective so moral rights can get a little bit too obsessive and elusive at times as well this is interesting and remember i teach in jail I teach in prison so i'm teaching ethics in prison these are these are men that have committed crimes some of which are crimes that are bad and they've gone through their repented process they have made amends they have been rehabilitated and now they're in my classroom and i am in a prison with no cell phone and they are sitting like this and looking at me and i'm telling them about justice and they tune in to these conversations 
because they understand it. And what justice means is moral decisions must be based on standards of equity, fairness, and impartiality. So if I'm going to create a judicial system that is going to be equitable, fair, and impartial, what does that mean? Could you potentially write that down? Answer that question. Create a structure, a system that is equitable, fair, and impartial to everybody. We can try, right? No meaning it's hard. So I'm 17, about to turn 18, and I stole a bottle of alcohol from the liquor store. Should I go to jail? I'm about to turn 18. These are the types of debates that are saying, wait a minute, that's not fair. You're telling me that if I walk into the liquor store and I'm 16 and I can steal something and I I don't get in trouble for it, but an 18-year-old goes to jail? How is that fair? If you have, if you are a nurse and you are treating people in a pandemic type of situation, let's look at COVID, and you have limited resources and you have to triage people, and you know that there's 10 people in your nurse situation, you know that five of them not doing so good, that there's a, a, a slightly less chance of them making it, and you only have enough resources to treat five people, who are you going to treat? Well, the utilitarian approach says treat them all equal, right? The individualist approach says treat the five that have the highest chance of survival. So this is where these, it's a clear, it's a clear cut decision on, well, what perspective, because if you did treat, you know, two of them could live, you never know. But then one of these over here could die. I mean, two of them, you have to make these decisions and you have to know how to allocate resources. And these are real decisions that people make. I have to spin this at some point in this talk towards business. And what's important is that we understand that as managers, we're in charge of creating the structures within our organization and the rules within our organization. So think about it this way. We're running a business, and it's a haircutting business. And all of you are hairstylists, except you two are the best hairstylists. And you just joined the team over here. And there, there's poor performance across the board. We're all not doing well. And I am cutting wages by 10%, except for you two. And oh, by the way, you're getting cut 20%. Because you're new. You do. Nothing's happening. Here, because you guys are the best. But everybody else, your wages are getting cut. Because you're not these two. And by the way, that guy's gone. So, But do you see how that, that's called distributive justice? It's different treatment of people cannot be based on arbitrary character characteristics. So you think, all right, in an organization of people, am I treating the person who's been here for 25 years different than I'm treating the person who's been here for five years? And if so, why? And is that fair? Do I have the right to do that as a manager? I sure as heck do. But how is that decision, how the consequences of that decision is going to, how are you going to feel about that? You're going to feel about it. You're going to be like, first of all, you might have disdain towards these two. This may have been your friend over here and a good friend of yours. And now you're upset. And every, Now I'm running an organization where I have preferential treatment, obviously made a, probably a bad decision on a new staff member. And two of you are probably upset with my decision because I wasn't attuned to the reality of justice as a manager. Okay, let's look at the other one. Procedural justice. Rules must be administered fairly. So we are we are running a, a retreat, a full-day retreat, and it's very important that in this full-day retreat that everybody read the material beforehand. And beforehand, I give everybody a case study on Harvard Business Review, some business account that you must read before you come. And so I've given you a procedure to follow. And when you come, half of you read it, half you don't. It's very clear. And I don't say anything. There's no there's no consequence. I don't even bring it up. Remember when I said, oh, you're late, this kind of stuff. It's just is swept under the rug. We have our full day retreat. Everything's fine. The next year we go to do the retreat again. The half of the people that didn't read said, oh, you don't have to read that thing. You know, they don't even care. You just kind of talk and chat. There's really not much to it, but don't worry about reading. No big deal. Isn't that a conversation that staff members would have amongst each other? So now think about it this way. When you go to the construction site, you got to put on your hard hat. When you put on your hard hat, after you put on your hard hat, you have to make sure you have steel toe boots before you go on the construction site. When you walk onto the construction site, if you see the project manager of the construction site for a client, you must say hi. And then as you proceed towards your job, I want you to leave here at 4 o'clock no later because I don't want to pay you overtime. Now, you guys understand those rules, right? If I can't procedurally enforce those rules for everyone, what happens with my team, my staff, my, my organization? So the, the one extreme is more liberal, more caring, but it matters because I gave a procedure and wasn't followed. So how am I gonna respond as a manager? And then the other one's a little bit more safety oriented. It's a little bit more clear that, hey, you gotta wear a hard hat, but you're, you're gonna, something's gonna hurt you. So, but what's the difference? 
To me, there is no difference. A manager gave a procedure, it wasn't followed. Or a manager, manager gave a procedure, it was followed. So if you deflate yourself in one area, you're, you're losing credibility in another. But that somebody can debate that. Does it matter? Should I be more stringent with the hard hat than I should be with the reading the case study? I'll, for the sake of conversation, I'll say, yeah, case study doesn't matter, hard hat matters. You have to be more procedurally just. You have to be more fair, impartial, and equitable across the board for the hard hat. But with the case study, eh, you know, the new guys got to read it. The, the old guys don't have to read it. There's intrinsic and extrinsic. So you, you do it because you know it's the right thing to do because you care and you want to protect yourself. But certain other people, they need extrinsic. They need somebody else to tell them what to do. So what you would be classified as in that situation is a theory Y employee versus a theory X employee. Theory Y says you, you like doing work because you like doing work and there's purpose to it and you care and you want to be a part of something bigger than yourself. Theory X says that you have to be coerced. You have to be paid. You have to be extrinsically motivated. You have to be told to go to work. You don't want to go to work. You're lazy. You just naturally don't enjoy it. And you need motivation in order to get up in the morning and go. You're going to have to manage both types of people. And you're going to have great people. And then you're going to have people that are eh, going to give you issues. Compensatory justice. Individuals should be compensated for the cost of their injuries by the party responsible. But they fell because they were doing their job. But they didn't file workman's compensation. As a manager, do you pay? They were doing work. They fell on duty at work. Meaning they fell and they got hurt because of being at work. And they missed five days of work. You don't have to pay. They didn't file workman's comp and they don't want to cause a stink. They just can't come to work. They have to stay at home. And you're the manager. You're in charge of payroll. You can decide whether or not you pay them. Save the money. Oh, great. I'll save five days worth of wages. I'll put it in my pocket. I'll take it. How my From my perspective, we would pay them 100%. It's just because we don't want the legal trouble. We know that they need the money. We had a small company, so we knew them personally. If they had a good track record and, man, they fell, we want to help them. We want to compensate them for their loss. That's an organization coming alongside a staff member. But that's not common, I would say, and it's not required. But that's compensatory. That, so that's a level of justice that you may think as an employee that you, you're entitled to that. And you could very well file a workman's comp. You could sue the heck out of your employer. There's, there's a good chance you probably won't work there anymore. You know, at some point, that's like the skating on thin ice thing. At least as an entrepreneur business owner, people are filing lawsuits against us and we're looking for their replacement. It's an employment at will state, so that's just the way we operate. I don't disagree with that. But in reality, there's things wrong with that too, that perspective I just said. But the point is, if a person, let's, let's talk about emotional for a second. If a person came to work and was, was robbed of their dignity to be nicely treated, so they were, they were caused harm at, at work, meaning they were made fun of, they were ridiculed, and they were called names. And from that, they filed a lawsuit. And they said, listen, I, I'm emotionally distraught because of this person. Should they be compensated for their emotional injury? It came out that, yeah, they were treated bad. And they, they, have, they had to go to a therapist and get treated for it. So the lawsuit's for $10,000. They had $6,000 worth of ther therapy needed, and they got $4,000 worth of additional therapy in the future. They quit the job. They sued you. They want $10,000. They want to be compensated for their emotional trauma. This is compensatory justice. If they can just like what we, what we demonstrate, this would be a civil case that she would pursue you on, not a criminal case. In the civil case, the same thing happens. The, the plaintiff, the person suing the other person, has to demonstrate that this, there's just cause. They have to show that this happened, this happened, that there's something in writing, that there's some bullying, maybe something recorded, maybe a, a witness. So the, the juries and the judges will, will know that, they'll see that, and they're just like you and I. They're like, okay, what, what, what happened? Why did that? And you can sort of tell sometimes. I'll tell one quick story. On Mondays, remember we worked in a pool, landscaping, construction business. So a lot of our staff members on the weekends would do what? Think about the demographic between the ages like 20 and 26. Drink, they party, they do stuff, they take their check on Friday, especially after we pay them. They go out on Friday, they're top of the world on Friday. They do whatever they do over the weekend. They get hurt at Club Live or Party Town USA, wherever they're at. They hurt their leg. They come into work on Monday, and then they, at the end of the day on Monday, they say, oh, man, my leg. I was cleaning the pool. My leg hurts. You know, I did it at work. And we would have to talk to them and say, oh, really? Like, how did this happen? You know, what, like, show us. What were you? Where were you standing? And do our own sort of, like, litigation. And then they say, okay, well, I got to go to the doctor. I got a doctor's bill. Turns out they broke their leg. They need surgery. 
and it turns out they're going to miss six weeks of work and that they're filing work misconduct. And we say, absolutely not. They lied. There's no chance. The homeowner said they were there. They were, they were walking fine in the morning. There's no, there's no evidence that they fell while at work and that they did this file. It's a pretty significant injury. There's no evidence of this injury happening at work. And then they sue you for, say, $70,000, $80,000 for this big claim. And the point, the point being is that this stuff happens. This, we have to be aware of this. And then we also have to be, we have to be equitable, fair, and impartial. Because if we pay that lawsuit, what's going to happen? So if you fall at work, we'll pay you. You know, just go take our money, and, and it's a problem. So these, these situations are relevant. And to be a good manager, we have to have individual ethics. I, just reading this, this was kind of interesting to look at. You can consider this maybe like levels of development as an actual ethical, moral human being that's contributing constructively and engaging, engaging well in society, like doing things well for society. Sometimes you can have people, and I think we can all agree, that are actually taking away from society is, is negatively contributing to society. So level one is follows rules to avoid punishment, acts in own interest, obedience for its own sake. I can't do that. I can't do this. I might as well just like conform. And that's really the first level of ethical maturity. The second level is conventional. Lives up to expectations of others, fulfills duties and obligations of social system, upholds laws. So the laws are given. They move forward with the laws, but they're, they're pursuing something a little bit higher than just legal, ethical conformity. They're, they're pushing, they're trying to make the world a better place. They're, they're contributing constructively to society, let's put it that way. Versus these people just sort of existing in society in a way of like, hey, they may be contributing, but they're just doing the... Doing what needs to get done to not get in trouble. And then you have level three, which is hopefully all what we're all moving towards, is follow self-chosen principles of justice and right, aware that people hold different values and seeks creative solutions to ethical dilemmas, balances concern for individual and concern for common good. This is a constructive way to engage. What's so interesting is once you start pushing these boundaries, sometimes you, you can get in trouble <laughs> because you're, you're starting to conflict with other people's value systems certainly in organizations. It, I don't like this saying at all, but I'm going to say it so you understand what I'm trying to say. People tend to think that no good deed goes unpunished, if you've ever heard of that. You do good, and people don't like you for it. And in a sense, there's a lot of people who like you for it, and there's a lot of people applauding you, and there's, it's certainly in your own right, you're saying, I need to do this, and good for you, do it. Make a difference. Go make the world a better place. Alleviate suffering somehow, some way. Do it. But it doesn't mean you're not going to get resistance. When you do that. So let's say in an organization you're a whistleblower. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. You've noticed that there's an accountant in that organization that is stealing money from the company. You know that this account's been there for a long time, has a trust of the executive, has a trust of your manager. If you went to your manager and you told your manager you think so and so stealing, like we talked about earlier, you don't really have evidence, but you're dang sure they're stealing. And you said that you could very well get fired for snitching or not snitching, but gossiping or not having proof and like spreading bad deceit about accounting. You could get fired for that. And sometimes whistleblowers do get fired for something like that. But they've, they've kind of made laws to protect that. But the point of me giving you that example is that we're sort of operating here. I love this example. There's a guy, I don't know his name. He, uh, he's on his deathbed, and he's thinking to himself, and I don't know what else he did in his life, but there's one thing he did for sure, is he got rid of the African guinea worm. And the African guinea worm was this grotesque creature that would come into your system through drinking water, like polluted water that had this guinea worm in it because it wasn't treated and, and people didn't have enough money to, to treat their water. So they have to drink water and they get this guinea worm. This guinea worm, as grotesque as it, as it is, had really no functionality other than the fact that it would get into your system and it would crawl through your skin. It was about this long or whatever. And it would pop its head out every once in a while when it was convenient for you and chew through the skin and, and it would make these marks all over your body. So you drink this water, you get the guinea worms, you're now like plagued with this guinea worm nonsense, and it's, it's a horrid thing. So what this guy did is he made it his mission to go to Africa, and he had this methodology and this, this chemistry that got rid of the guinea worms. Like he destroyed them all by putting treatments in waters everywhere he went that just killed the guinea worm. And now no longer on this planet are there guinea worms. Good for this guy, right? Like applaud him. What he did may not have been easy, may not have been compensated for it, but he made the world a little bit less horrible by ridding the world of the guinea worm. And in, in certain sense, and it sort of gives me the, you know, gives me the chills and excitement when I think about it. It's like, so what? Where are we 
as managers leaders, where are we called to to make the world a little bit less difficult for others? And how can we contribute to the betterment of the world? And if you know, the Guinea Worm example doesn't give you a, a valid pursuit of some sort to realize that there is one day that you're going to be looked at or you're going to be laid, laid like this or when you're fired from your managerial role or when you sell your company or when you move on to the next company, people are going to look back and say, well, what did he do? Is this place better or worse without this person? Make some incremental change over time. That's good. But if you're, if you're a manager that's pretty convicted and you, you understand the laws and you, you have a good value system and you're pursuing goals that are righteous and ethical and, and are of best interest, more, maybe more for others than for yourself, you're going to make a difference. And you're going to be like the guy who's made the world a little bit better by the time you're done with that organization. And I, I say all power to you. Like, do it. This is my calling for you. I ask you to do that big time. Giving versus taking. So we have an option when we come into an environment. And I think some of us can relate. Who here has been in an environment where you have people, friends, whatever, that are givers? What does that look like to you? What does that do for you as her subordinate, in a sense? And what would that look like if she was a taker? Meaning a manager that was that was a taker that that selfishly cared about taking things from the organization and relationships as opposed to giving back to them. Well, first of all, she wouldn't have came in, right? And she likely would have when she came in, she probably wouldn't have asked you, like, mm-hmm. how you doing? Or, or when she came in, she probably would have walked in like option two when I came in on the phone, like completely oblivious to the fact that you were going through a struggle. So that would be an example of a taker. Is that immoral and ethical to be a taker? No. I would just I'll take that a step further and I just think it would really suck to be around a bunch of people who are takers all the time. And But this is true. This happens everywhere we go. And I try my very best not to be a taker. But sometimes I'm selfish. I think I, I'm my default is selfishness. That's honesty. It's openness. It's the truth. I believe that I'm not a taker. I know that I'm a giver in a lot of different senses. But the truth is it's not always an easy thing. I have to choose to be a giver. And it's not my default. My default is I got to go. I'm hungry. Tired. I need more of whatever it is I'm trying to get, and I don't really have a lot of patience. That's my default. So I have to put all those things in check when I realize that it's important that I be a giver. And I'm assuming, and we'll use that example for instance, that she didn't want to come to work that day. It was a day off. Like That was a day that she was not supposed to be at work. But because you were having an issue, she chose to take her time, put it aside, and be there and be present for you and give her time for you. That is a gift. So how can we be more givers and takers? Managers who use servant leadership focus on needs of the followers and encourage others to think for themselves. Giving cultures in which people help one another lead to greater sharing of information, collaboration, and effectiveness. Harvard studies show the single biggest predictor of a team's effectiveness, remember we talked about efficiency and effectiveness, effectiveness is being able to accomplish organizational goals. Efficiency is doing it with the least amount of resources was the amount of help and support members gave one another. So I'm a student of servant leadership, not because I think it's the only way in which we should lead because I think it's contextual. I think that if you're a leader of a nonprofit like the Boys and Girls Club, you're going to lead differently than you are if you're the the captain of a squad that's going from Israel into Gaza and is needs to, to be assertive. There, there's, there's a different context. You use different leadership styles can't be a servant leadership everywhere. That's I know that scientifically, but I'm a student of servant leadership because it's phenomenal what it can do if done consistently. And to be able to exude servant leadership and to be able to choose certain le- servant leadership in certain fashions of your leadership, to truly know, hey, listen, my essence of a leader is when you see me, I want you to see through me to the people I'm leading. I, I, I don't really want you to see me. I want you to see the people I'm leading as good, reliable, professional, studious people. That's it. My duty is to make sure you see that. And therefore, I'm really actually back here and I'm serving you guys. I'm encouraging you. I'm I'm telling you as you're facing forward and facing the battle, I'm saying you got this. You can do it. I'm looking at some of you who may be limping along and saying, hey, how can I help? What can I do to support you? Who can I be that can best influence you? What are your goals and your ambitions? How can we fit that into the organization's goals? This is serving leadership. This is being a giver as a manager doesn't always work. Sometimes you can be taken advantage of as a servant leader, but the effectiveness, if done right, is profound. It means that you can you can scale a company and you can create leaders amongst leaders. So my, my job was to create other leaders, not to be a leader or a manager. Yeah, that's awesome. 
But what, what is my score? My score is how many other leaders did I create, inspire, and encourage to become better people? That's essence of certain leadership. Simon Sinek, who's a great author, has a, a good shtick, spiel on certain leadership. Again, I'm not saying that that's the only way to lead because it depends. But that's a great explanation of what a servant leader would do and why a servant leader is. And if we took a poll anonymously and we really said, okay, would you want to work for a servant leader who acted like that? I would, I would think that most of you would say, yeah. And in the heart of hearts, we want our leaders to take a look for us. We want our leaders to, to, to protect us, to go to bat for us. One of the best things you can do if you're a manager in any sort of way is that if you have the ability or the chance to interact with a spouse or a significant other or a child of the person that you lead, and you can tell them how great that their their father or their spouse or their significant other is at work and how grateful you have. Hey, listen, Johnny, he's, he's just a great man. I'm really happy he's here with us. And you, know, you should be proud of your father. He works very hard and he does a lot for this organization and we really care about him. Your father, your father means a lot to me. He means a lot to us. And you, you overheard that conversation where the little boy came back to you and said, hey, this is what your boss just said. That's what we want our leaders to do. We want them to go to bat for us. And those little decisions, they matter. And that's, that's where when you really call into this like personal style of leadership, it matters. So now we're shifting gears. We're going from, that, that's what giving managers tend to do. We all understand taking managers. We acknowledge the fact that change is hard, and then we try to figure out how, how best to implement some of these changes. Because change means human behavior has to change. Change means we need to build some level of consensus. Change means we need to acknowledge the fact that it could potentially not work. Change means we need to measure baseline variables and then compare them to outcomes and realize what interventions are actually working versus which ones are not having an effect. And when you think about something like poverty, which is one of the uh, most intriguing one of those for me is alleviating poverty. And I believe an intervention that can happen is to get uh, people that live in poverty to be entrepreneurs, and to start businesses, and to teach them business acumen, and to help them alleviate poverty through entrepreneurship. And it hasn't been demonstrated, it really hasn't been studied, so I'm in, intrigued by that concept. But in order to seek funding to give me resources for projects, I need to demonstrate that this thing works. I need to measure it. I need to have baselines. I need to have a ability to build a vision and the mindset and to, to get a team together. So change this this kind of change is very difficult. Corporate social responsibility. And so that's this is what sustainable development is. SDGs are, or sorry, corporate social responsibility. These are management's obligation to make choices to take actions that will contribute to the welfare and interests of society not just the organization. Is being a company that propagates and puts forward corporate social responsibility, is that always good for the bottom line? Does it earn more profit for the company? No, not always. No. Not always. If we have corporate social responsible endeavors, meaning we say we have a backpacking event and we feed local people from the elementary school who aren't getting enough food and we spend $5,000 on every backpacking event, will that help our profit at the end of the day? It's an expense. Out. It's an expense, yeah. So it takes away from our profits. We agree? Disagree? Yeah. If given to a, a nonprofit, a formidable charitable organization, but if just money, spending money at BJ's and just giving money to the community, not always do companies write off corporate social responsibility mission. They do it because it's the right thing to do. They don't do right. it because it's a write off. But he, here's what the research and science has demonstrated over time is that it's difficult to decide whether or not it helps with profits. But there is, there are some studies that demonstrate the benefit to profitability for an organization because of corporate social responsible initiatives. It creates more brand loyalty, more brand trust, more brand awareness. There's a company, H&M, I think, that has fully ensured that their products don't come from Brazil and Amazon rainforest because they don't want deforestation. So they've made it very clear to their purchasers that this material does not come from that, and therefore they've gained additional market share because of that. Because people care. I did a study during um, the doctor program. It was just for one particular class where it looked at corporate social responsibility during a black swan event like COVID. So think about, if you remember, your initial reactions to what corporations, how corporations responded to people who were dying and on air devices because of COVID. 
And if they responded in a way that says, hey, we're shutting down operations and we're making masks, and we're going to give those masks to as many people as possible, we have plenty of money, we're not too worried about it, would that make you more loyal to that company during a black swan event? The, the, the research behind it said yes and no. If we're an individualistic culture, not so much. Collectivist culture, yeah. So different societies, different cultures, contextually, respond to corporate social responsibility a little bit differently. So here's two philosophies that we can discuss too, which is more fun than looking at the slides. Uh, a company is meant to make profit and returns for shareholders, and that's it. Versus a company is meant to have a triple bottom line, people, planet, and profit, and needs to be constructed for the society and not just the shareholders. Two camps. This has caused a lot of friction in business conversations, corporate social responsibility. So there are many companies out there right now that are operating in this camp, and they just they, they take their money, they, they pay it to their employees, they pay it to, and, and they, they return it to their shareholders, which then the shareholders can do what they want with it. Give it away, they can donate it. A lot of times they do philanthropic things with it. Versus companies that like um, Salesforce is a big one that really does incorporate their profits and their revenue into a corporate social structure, and that tends to help them out. And they believe that their company is meant to take care of people. The profit is one of three and the planet to make sure that they don't have a negative impact on the planet. So this is what corporate social responsibility is. And, and understanding who, who are the stakeholders, a lot of times corporations say, customers are important, suppliers and communities and employees and but their, their stakeholders are the shareholders. And they, they get money from customers, they siphon it through the corporation, they go to shareholders. But companies now are developing a product that has a match with the customer. And they're making sure their employees, suppliers, communities, and shareholders are all equitably, justly, and fairly compensated. I mean, it's fun because you can take it from an individual level where I talked about the equity, just, and fairness, and now you can bring it to a corporate level. Like the unit of analysis is the person making those decisions. Now we're bringing it to the corporation and, and making these justice-based decisions. What if I said, okay, yeah, we're, we have corporate social responsibility goals, and they, they equip our... You know, 99% of that money and resources goes to shareholders. And now, yeah, we'll put some back in the community. You know, we'll just, we'll give some. So now you, you open up the Pandora's box of like, well, that's not enough. And then, well, what is enough? And then do we let our, the, the society determine that? Do we let our employees determine that? How do we decide what's enough? Because at a certain point, organizations, they have to have cash flow, resource-based view for management. That our resources are human resources, our financial resources, our physical resources, our intellectual property. These are resources that we need to create strategy around. And if we're not smart enough to plan and create strategy around those resources and to allocate resources through an organizational structure to achieve organizational goals, remember planning, organizing, leading, and controlling, and then managing, like being able to observe control is saying monitoring what's going on. Are we actually performing? If that isn't your priority as a manager, and your priority is corporate social responsibility, and you're just taking resources and giving them to other people, it's, you're going to have a struggle. So there has to be a balance. By all means, give as much as you can to corporate social responsible initiatives, yet understand how that impacts your ability to execute your strategy to achieve organizational goals for your for your primary responsibility, which is management. You know, it's, again, it's, this is the point. Like, it's an art and a science, right? <laughs> we don't know whether or not we should do this stuff. The triple bottom line is what I, I phrase with the P's. You'll hear a lot of that. People, profit, and planet. That's considered the triple bottom line. So there's a, a level of sustainability where we have to realize that profit is one of three. And in order to do any of these two, we have to have profit in order to make them happen. But this is a good example. Measures, social performance, treatment of employees, and fair labor practices. Basically saying that, hey, we don't need to just have a measurement to say we were profitable this year. We had a 15% profit margin. No, that's our financials. That's great. But we need to understand how many people did we lose? How many lawsuits did we have against us? How many uh, fair labor practice did we implement? How many new developmental initiatives did we have for our team and our staff? How many classes did our, our team accomplish this year? Like how much learning criteria did they have? That would be people. And then planet would be how much did we save on recycling versus throwing out trash? Uh, do we have carbon emissions? Can we cut them down? Did we provide our employees with a, a van shuttle service to work? So 15 cars aren't pulling in every morning and maybe only two cars are pulling in every morning. And you Again, the decisions and multiplicity. You always have to think, all right, yeah, it's cool to put like recycling bins out and all that kind of stuff. 
But over the next five years, you could very well pile on There's a fun story about an initiative that this company was doing, which made perfect sense. They wanted to get people to recycle more. And they wanted to get people to realize the, the potential of the recycling. So people weren't really recycling. They were being lazy, just throwing all stuff in the trash can and not the recycle bin like they were supposed to. And this organization, over the course of like three weeks, took all of the recycling and all of the trash and dumped it into a single pile on the in, in the parking lot and just dumped it all, all the time. And then they went in there with hazmat suits and they separated out the trash from the recyclable stuff. And it turned out the trash was like nothing, a little thing. The recyclable was so big that 90% of what they were throwing out was recyclable. And then the, the people in the organization, they would go out every day and they would see the pile. They let it sit there for like you know two or three days. So everyone saw it. They conceptualized it. They saw the vision of the power of what these environmental performance things could do. One little action of instead of throwing it there, throw it there. And it opened up education and it talked about why it's important, how to do it, what's recyclable, what's not. And over the course of like five years, they ended up like reselling some of their recyclable goods and actually making a profit back to the company by, by doing better at this kind of stuff and getting governmental stipends. So it actually became a profitable initiative for them. And that was we, the reason why I tell that story is because it was in the change management book that we went through. And that's not an easy thing to get people to do. We talk about changing behavior. And so there's two ways in which you can build an organization to be ethical. Our goal is to create an atmosphere where people behave ethically and care about these kinds of things. One way is a values-oriented approach. So I can instill values, walk out my values. We value integrity. We value hard work. We value being accountable. We value responsibility. And then we tell everyone. We have education on it. We, we, we give incentives for people to do it. We have consequences if they don't act that way. I walk out those values. I make sure my leaders act out those values. And therefore, we build a framework of an organization that's ethical based on a values-oriented approach. A structured-oriented approach is more we have systems in place to ensure that bad behavior is monitored and there's consequences involved. So I say, all right, uh, you know the police force, they, they confiscate a bunch of drugs, right? In a police orientation, you say, oh, well, you're supposed to act well, don't steal, all this kind of stuff. But sometimes police officers aren't paid enough and they have, say, like $100,000 cash that they confiscated from a, from a criminal sitting in a thing. So the structure-oriented approach, this is a good way to think about it, is they, they cannot have a key to this thing and they change the key every week. They also make sure that there's a double accountability process where once they lock it up, then somebody else comes and takes inventory. They're not allowed to take inventory and put it in there at the same time. So you can see they're creating this system and these rules that eliminates bad behavior just simply because they're just trying to remove it from the situation. So think about if you worked in a, in a fast food restaurant and you, you really liked fast food and you had no discipline and you just love food. You, you eat food all the time, right? Like you're hungry. You're going to get big and fat, whatever. So if you, if you wanted to create structure around that, you would take your thumbs while you're at work. You know, you would uh, get on a scale every single night when you got home. It was just part of your procedure to make sure you're, you're like holding yourself accountable by creating structure to change your behavior versus just saying, oh, well, I'm a healthy person and I, I believe in fitness and I have these values. But are you actually structuring your life to walk those values out? So these are two different ways you can do both in an organization to create an organization that that operates ethically. This code of ethics is really saying, okay, just like a value system, you can write something, and I have an example I can upload it, that really just says, okay, here's how we behave. Here's some ways in which we do things and some ways in which we don't. And it can be a code, you can put it in your, your human resource book, and you can have people sign it. Every year, you can have them resign it, just a code. And sometimes when they read it, they might walk it out. 